passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And welcome to episode two of Cruel Summer, our show looking back at each and every G1 Climax Tournament files, uh, finals from the year 1991 to 2018. And this year we're going to talk about uh, is uh, 1992, which features Ravishing Rick Rude taking on Masahiro Chono for the G1 Climax finals and also the vacant NWA World Heavyweight title. And joining me on the line is a friend of mine, uh, also a fellow Canadian, and uh, he's na- his name is Matt McEwen. Matt, how are you today? Good. I'm doing great, WH. I'm really excited to talk about this match, and uh, uh, a little bit of maritime wrestling history gets worked into this, too. Oh, excellent, excellent. So you are, like me, a Canadian, but unlike me, you still live in Canada. Uh, what part of Canada are you from, Matt? Uh, I'm from the very cold and snowy area of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Oh, lovely. Uh, one day I've never been to the, you know, the Maritimes. One of these days when I, when I move back to Canada, I'm going to hit you up for, uh, like, uh, you know, for vacation. Like I'm going to come visit you if that's okay with you. Absolutely. I'd be insulted if you didn't. Oh, well, I, I would not want to insult you. I can't imagine the, 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 the sarcastic tweets you would fire at me with like mentions of me so uh and quote tweeting me i'm sure i, I do I'm not insulted want that. that you think i'm sarcastic i'm never sarcastic oh <laughs> uh, yeah uh, i mean if i i suppose if i ever talk about contract tempering then like the sarcasm will come through oh uh, don't do that that that's just mean i was in a good mood <laughs> it is one of your pet peeves isn't it it is it, it, it doesn't actually exist and Everybody goes on and on about it, but don't get me started. Well, certain people, like, trigger you more than others, I feel. Well, well, yes, yes. Some people do trigger me nicely. Um, So I want to talk a bit about maybe people aren't familiar with you. This isn't your first time on on a podcast, is it? No, no, it's not. Uh, Our mutual friend, Alan Forel, likes to talk to me every once in a while. And you've been on, I guess, both uh, when he was on The Observer uh, uh, doing the Dr. Keith Presents show, and uh, and then since he's moved to The Torch, you, you've been on both shows? Yeah, I've been on both. Okay. Usually, I have to ask this, do you usually do it just you and Alan, or is it with you, Alan, and our friend Joey? It's uh, me, Alan, and our friend Joey. You guys should just, like, you and Joey should just start your own show, I feel, at some point. I, we should, but... We would just be so friendly and happy about everything. Nobody would listen. No, you should you should pitch this to either Alan through to do it on the torch, or pitch it to to me to send to John, and maybe, maybe John be like, "Wow, a, a polite podcast that would that would be interesting. We could we need something like that on our on our network over at Post Wrestling." But <laughs> I digress. Um, yeah, so it's, this is not like you know like your first time in the saddle. So I, I always enjoy talking with you. And I say you're my friend, but we've only met twice in person. Yeah, but we had some good times together. Oh, it was good, yeah. Um, the second time, we, we spent more time talking and hanging out. And that was, uh, when was that? Last August, correct? Last August for the uh, last three nights of the G1 in the lovely Budokan Hall. Yeah, and uh, we also saw some other shows. We went to the Stardom show, and we went to the Big Japan show, both on the same day as the uh the finals of the g1 climax of this particular uh year 
Um, it was a very was long day and a very fun day, and I never want to see a death match that close again. Oh God! All the, like Mort was pretty happy. Our friend brother Mort was excited to have shards of light tube glass land on him. I I was not. I was rather like scared and mortified. Um, but yeah, I, I I'm planning to go see another you know big Japan show maybe coming up in April um, during Golden Week. But I'm definitely going to try to get seats like way in the back, way 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 in the back. So not nothing close to the ring. It's it's rather a frightening experience for for me i know a lot of people enjoy it but that's i'm not one of those people yeah i wasn't one of those people either either that was uh a somewhat frightening experience yeah I, well let's go away from big japan and come back to new japan so like i said uh, episode two we're looking at 1992 uh specifically august 12th 1992 from sumo hall and matt have you been to sumo hall i have I saw Invasion Attack 2016 there. I think that's the day we met. That is the day we met. I think we all went to, like, uh, Caesarea, which is, like, a, a family restaurant chain here in Japan that serves, quote-unquote, Italian food. I will yes. say this about Caesarea. I went there with uh, my friend uh, Braden Harrington, who does the Up Next show when he was in Japan uh, last January. And, um, he, he talks about Caesarea quite often on, on his own podcast, but, uh, it is one of the best values for the amount of food you get and kind of the, the taste as well. It's, it's not like shit. It doesn't taste like shit. It's actually quite good and it's incredibly cheap. So I like going there at least once a week. Uh, we'll have to go back, uh, do a visit back to Caesarea whenever you're back in Japan, Matt. That's a date. There you go. Okay. So. This particular finals was headlined by uh, Ravishing Rick Rude, who was at this time working for WCW, and uh, and uh, by Masahiro Chono, who was a one of the you know top liners of New Japan at the time, one third of the Three Musketeers, along with Keiji Muto and uh, Shinya Hashimoto. Uh, let's see, what do I have in my notes? Um, so this is the second annual G1 Climax. Uh, the year before. They did an eight-man round-robin league, and this this year they went to a single elimination format with 16 wrestlers. Uh, and that, like I said before, it was not only was it for you know the prestige of being the the G1 Climax winner, but also for the vacant NWA World Heavyweight Championship, which was kind of in flux at this time. I think primarily due to uh, Ric Flair leaving for the WWF at this time. Yeah, so Flair left with the big gold belt, which, of course, he showed up up on WWFTU with. Uh, in my 12-year-old mind at the time, I, I was just in shock. Uh, and then, of course, WCW actually owned the belt. Uh, the NWA had nothing to do with WCW at the time. And then when Bill Watts came in, they decided to bring in the NWA back. Uh, but it was supposed to be a WCW pay-per-view earlier in August, and Watts didn't want to do it, and that's how it ended up as part of the G1. So and then this G1 ran from August 6th to August 12th, which is, you know, like, the same with, like, the year before and for subsequent years following. The, the G1 was actually about a week long. Very different from how it is now, which is now about four weeks long. Um, I I think it's better for the wrestlers to have a longer tour because they have actually have they don't have to wrestle all these matches in, on single shows for like you know five days straight. They can have like these breaks in between. I tend to prefer that format. What do you think about that, Matt? Um, uh, I can I can see the benefits of both sides. A smaller group, quicker tournament doesn't. I'm not going to get burned out watching uh, great matches every day for four or five weeks. Then again, I get to great watch great matches every day for four or five weeks, and I'm pretty happy about that, too, every August. Yeah, I, I think also the thing we have to keep in mind is that this G1 Climax Tour now makes New Japan a shitload of money. So I don't think they're ever going to go back to a, 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 like a shorter format, uh, a shorter tour to, for this particular tournament. I think we're kind of be stuck at four week long tournaments uh, and everyone just trying to keep up. It's okay for me. Like I just come home, I turn it on. If I, if I miss the beginning of it, I'll just watch it back on replay and I'll just skip mainly the undercard and just watch the tournament matches. Um, but I can't imagine 
it's easy for people who live outside of Japan, particularly in North America. Yeah, well, we were just talking beforehand, and I'm exactly 12 hours uh, behind Japanese time. So if you're getting a five in the evening or six o'clock show, that's five in the morning or six in the morning here. And then, you know, you got to go to work. And if you're on Twitter like I am, you want to avoid spoilers. And then, you know, you got everything you need to do in the evening and then settle down and watch your uh, matches after dinner. But half a dozen, one, six of the other. It can be can be kind of a challenge. So looking at the participants of this tournament, we have quite quite a, a, a rogues gallery here, Matt. We have Arn Anderson, Steve Austin, Keiji Mudo, Barry Windham, Masahiro Chono, uh, Tony Hame, who most people might remember as Ludwig Borga in the WWF, uh, Scott Norton, Bam Bam Bigelow, Kensuke Sasaki, uh, Jim the Anvil Neidhart, I did not know he was in this tournament. I have to go back and watch his matches, or one of them at least. Uh, Hiroshi Hase, Terry Taylor, Shinya Hashimoto, The Barbarian, Super Strong Machine, and Ravishing Rick Rude. It is the strangest 16-man tournament I can think of. Yeah, I can't imagine, like, uh, if, you know, if these guys were told, you're going to go on a four-week tour... And have like you know uh, a match every day of the tour, plus traveling, plus in the heat and humidity of August in Japan. What a lot of like these guys would say, I, I like maybe Art Anderson would be okay with it. I can see maybe Terry Taylor. I don't know what he's like, but I can just imagine him like what? But he worked for Watts, you know, in the UWF, so maybe he'd be okay with a super, <laughs> you know, st- super like stressful <laughs> schedule <laughs> for like a month or so. Yeah, but just imagine trying to sit through Jim Neidhart and Ludwig Morgan. Is that the first round pairing? I haven't. I don't have the brackets in front of me, actually. No, but I'm just imagining if, uh, as a G1 is set up now, a you know for a four week tour and a round robin to have to sit through that would be a painful. Maybe, yeah. I, I think like maybe if we had a Jim Neidhart Scott Norton match, a lot of a lot of the match would just be them like stroking their beards. <laughs> Both men like to do that, as I recall. Definitely Neidhart. I, I'm pretty sure a lot of times you'll see Scott Norton like just stroking his goatee a lot. So uh, I don't know if I'd want to have like you know 10, 15 minutes of that. Um, so like with all these participants, obviously this is during a period when New Japan and WCW had a very, very strong relationship. Um, and then we look. Let's look at the paths each of our participants took to get to the finals. So for Chono, he submitted. Uh, Tony Hame, he submitted Scott Norton, and he submitted Keiji Muto all on his way to the finals. And I, I haven't watched these matches yet, so I'm going to assume he submitted all three of them with the STF uh, face lock. I think that's correct, and that's the uh, the deadly move that Lou Seves taught him. And that subsequently, you know, John Cena mastered during his uh, reign as WWE. WWE champion uh, on multiple occasions. Well, it, it, it is just a devastating submission hold. This is true, yes. Uh, let's look at Rick Rude. He pinned Super Strong Machine. Uh, he went on to pin Shinya Hashimoto. And he pinned uh, Kensuke Sasaki. So Rick Rude getting some big wins over uh, some legendary names here, in- including, I would say, Super Strong Machine, who was always positioned as a very strong like mid-card, upper mid-card guy at this time. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, Rude won all those matches with the uh, flying knee off the top rope. Did he? I, I, he didn't use the Rude Awakening. No, I think he was using the flying knee. Okay, so I, I have to go back and watch these. Um, to be honest, I don't think I've seen this particular match uh, since I watched it on WCW television back in like ninety two, ninety three, maybe. So I, how long has it been since you last watched this match? Until, like, I was in the guys? exact same boat. Uh, when, when you uh, approached me with the possible open dates for this uh, podcast, I, that, this is one that jumped out to me because I remembered seeing the match, but I hadn't seen it in years. Okay, so we're going to talk about the match right now. Um, so like I said, it, it's emanating from Sumo Hall. It's August 12th, 1992, and uh, it's it's crowded. It's packed. There's an electric electricity in the air, Matt. 
Oh, right off the bat, like the the crowd is as hot as possible. It's, they are excited for the match. And it's and, uh, something you don't really see a lot anymore. And I've been in Sumo Hall during the G1 Climax finals in in recent years. So I, I don't know what the air conditioning was like in 1992. I can't imagine it was that much better. But, you know, it's very hot in there. And you have and it's filled up with like, what's the capacity again? Of Sumo Hall, I, I, I'm I'm trying to remember. I I think it's over ten thousand people. Yeah, and they definitely have four people to the boxes on the floor. It's as as filled as they could get it. Well, the thing I'm 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 interested in talking about at this point is just like if you if you look at across from the hard camera side, you see some important dignitaries from WCW. There, you see Bill Watts, you see Dusty Rhodes. And yep. you see, I, I think Hiro Matsuda was working for WCW at this time because he was based in the United States, I think in Florida, but he was working for WCW in the office. So he yep. came over. And then, of course, at, at the tail end, on if, if you're looking at the screen on the left side would be Antonio Noki. And the funny thing about this is that all four of these men are wearing suits, like <laughs> full on business suits. And I And I'm just like... I just feel so bad for them because it must be so hot in, in that arena for them. I, I'm, I'm assuming they didn't watch the entire tournament, that they came out just for the finals. Um, but if they were there for the whole show, bless their hearts, they, they endured a lot. Um, so let's talk about in the ring. We have Rick Rude, and he's seconded by Medusa, who was his valet manager uh, in the Dangerous Alliance at this time. I guess they didn't want to bring Paul Heyman over. Well, so right around this time, Rude and Medusa were kind of separating themselves from the Dangerous Alliance because Rude had been in WCW for about uh, nine or ten months. And I think Paul Heyman got himself in a little bit of trouble with Bill Watts. And uh, so the Dangerous Alliance was uh, slowly disintegrating. Is this the point where, like, I think Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton are being managed by Michael Hayes? Yes. Okay, I I kind of remember that period then. Um, so, you know, so it you know, the thing about Medusa is that she was actually a, a, a big star in the Joshi scene around this time. I, I think maybe a little after this time, it, she started coming over for I I don't know which promotion. I w- I'm assuming might have been like All Japan Women, and she made a you know, she's become quite a legend now. Like if she comes over for Japan, she does stuff with stardom. Um, but yeah, I don't, I'm not sure at this point if she was actively wrestling herself doing tours in Japan or it was like between this point and between her point in the WWF. Uh, you know what? I don't know either. My, uh, my knowledge on the history of Joshi is, uh, limited, but, uh, so she would have gone to the WWF about a year, year and a half after this. Yes, yeah, so I'm thinking it was around this time because, like, obviously she had the match with uh, Bull Nakano in the WWF. I don't, I don't know if that was their first meeting or they had set things up previously in Japan. But it, it's, it's kind of interesting to see her out with Rude. And valets are not common uh, back then as they are now. We can, of course, we see like Tai Chi coming out with Miho Abe. And, and I try not to see Tai Chi at all. Well, you know that that being what it is. I mean, I'll, I'll say he's <laughs> far more tolerable than he was like a, a year or two ago for me. Uh, Mia Abe is always welcome on my television screen. As long as she's not interfering, I just find it ridiculous when she interferes because uh, yeah. she's so small. Like, why would anyone be affected or, you know, uh, distracted by her? But it's wrestling. It is what it is. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention that was interesting is that when they announced Masahiro Chono, obviously he gets a big pop, but he also gets streamers which you don't see in New Japan anymore because they banned streamers at New Japan shows. I, I think the, the story behind that was that the ring announcer at the time, at, the ring announcer at the time, whose name escapes me, was hit by a streamer once, and he, he got injured by it because they're not just streamers. It's not just like a light material. There's actually weight. They're weighted at the end so people can throw them and, and, and so they can travel quite a distance. So I think he got hit by one in the head. He got injured, and then they said, okay, no more. The other thing you got to remember with streamers is that they are expensive to dispose of because Japan is very, very strict these days about, like, recycling and disposing of garbage. That That's all fascinating to me. I've never heard any of that before. 
Yeah, I, I don't quote me on like the the ring announcer getting injured. That's I think that's somewhere I heard that on a message board years ago from a reliable source, but uh, that's apocryphal, as they say. Uh, if, if that's not true, I don't want to know what is true. I like that story. Okay, we're gonna go with that. Anyways, uh, we'll have to. I'll have to refer back to uh, Chris Charlton's first book. Maybe it's in there. Uh, so yeah, big Chono chant at the beginning of this match. Rick Rude getting big booze. He's he's really playing it up. I think he's really enjoying getting this kind of reaction from a Japanese crowd. Um, yeah, then it, you know, like Rick Rude starts the match. He goes up to Chono, gets in his face, talks some shit to him, and then immediately attacks Chono. This match starts off really hot right at the beginning, Matt. Oh yeah, it just uh, they build the crowd up so nice with the uh, Rude just jaw jack Chono, and then cheap shotting him with the slap, and then. Chono just fires right back and the crowd loves it. Yeah, and then we see uh, Chono come back. Hit, he hits Rick Rude with repeated clotheslines until uh, Rude does the face flop to the mat and then uh, rolls out to the outside of the ring. And then uh, here, Chono gets uh, heat on Rude by doing the uh, hip swivel. Not, not as good as Rude, though. Oh, no. And... Uh... One of my favorite parts of the match comes up later when when Rude does it proper. Yeah, later on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's see. Chono catches uh, Rick Rude in a sleeper. Uh, Rick Rude escapes with a jawbreaker, and then uh, you know Rick Rude then works over Chono uh, to loud booze. People are not liking this at all. In fact, if you if you watch across from the hard camera, right behind like the Dusty Rhodes, Bill Watts row, you see this one Japanese fan in wearing a pink, uh, like, polo shirt. He's, like, every time Rude gets offense, he's just, like, getting his thumbs up and, and pointing them downward. Boo! Like this. He, he, this guy is, like, I'm hoping he still goes to shows and that one day I will, I will meet him. Probably never going to happen, but it would be a nice thing to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm got the video playing in the background right now, and he is uh, Chono's biggest fan, and Hates Rude with a passion. Yes. Uh, let's go. Getting back to the Mac, uh, Rude tries to do a second drawbreaker, but Chono psychs him out and applies a sleeper on him. So, like, basically, Rude is in front of Chono. He's going to do a, a drawbreaker, but, like, he drops down. Chono stays up, and Rude's like, what the fuck? Where's Chono? And then Chono just applies a sleeper hold to him. Uh, at this point, there's an extended period where both men are on the mat exchanging holds back and forth. It's kind of like a Randy Orton special. For for modern fans, if they want a reference to what I'm talking about, yeah, but it's so much better than that, especially since where Chono's his big moves the STF, and uh, this whole sequence is him working over Rude's neck, and then the next sequence he starts working over Rude's leg, all both of which are going to tie into the STF. Yeah, Chono's more or less using uh, head scissors around uh, Rude's leg, a uh, Rude's head. And, and Root usually was coming back with a side headlock. But, I mean, like, if you look at Root's arms, I mean, that side headlock's got to be super painful. Oh, and I, I'm not sure what kind of roids he was uh, uh, sequencing on right at that point, but uh, he's got the full Popeye arms. Yeah, it, I mean, that man has always had, like, amazing physique and, and amazing arms. But, like, me, I think when he went to the WCW... It was like uh, like a point where he was just like, okay, I'm a main eventer. I got to get bigger. Uh, yeah, but like I, I would not want to be caught in a headlock from uh, Rick Rude. Um, no. At this point, uh, uh, Chono starts working Rude's leg to set up a figure four leg lock. He applies it, but uh, Rude reverses it. Uh, and at this point, you can see in firmly behind in, uh, in Chono's corner are Keiji Muto and Shinya Hashimoto lending support to their friend against the dastardly American heel. Uh, from there, Chono repeatedly uh, starts uh, kicking Root's left knee, and announcers keep referring to the STF at this point. So you know that they're they're adding for the home audience, like, okay, that's his big move. He's setting him up. He worked over the neck. He's going to work over the left knee because the STF works on both uh, the leg and, and, and the knee specifically and a person's neck. Uh, I think they're trying to put over this the idea that Chono wants to win with that particular move, Matt. Yeah, and, I, and it's like I said, that that slower sequence at the first, it's all based around 
what Chongo's obviously going to try and use as a finish. Uh, the flip side of that is you can hear the crowd get terrified every time Root goes up to the top. And uh, you can hear the announcers uh, a little bit of a Japanglish. They're uh, talking about the double flying knee drop coming. So like you're saying, it plays into this whole idea that Rude really got this move over during the tournament. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, at this point, uh, Rude catches Chono with a pile driver for a two count. And it, it's kind of like, for me, like, I don't know, like, I don't want to say prophetic, but it's interesting because later on, you know, Chono suffers an injury at the hands of Steve Austin from a pile driver. And then after that period, he would never be the same again. Yeah, and uh, I'd forgotten how good young Chono was before he got hurt. Uh, like I said, it had been so long since I watched this match, and I got, you know, get used to Yakuza Chono, uh, who's essentially immobile and entirely out of shape, and Young Chono could go. Young Chono had a lot more variety in his, like, in his moveset, which I'm gonna talk about a, l- a little later. Um, from this point, uh, Rude goes to the top rope and hits a hammer blow and, and a short clothesline sequence. Uh, he then does the hip swivel that you referred to earlier, Matt, to a loud, loud chorus of boos. Uh, a loud chorus of boos, and I, I'm not sure if I'm just not understanding what the announcer's saying, but it sounds like he's saying grinder, grinder, grinder. Oh, they're they're kind of like uh, kind of like ahead of their time calling a move that, that would be a popular dance move later on in, in uh, this in this uh, century. Uh, from there, we have a long chin lock sequence with Rude applying a chin lock to, uh, on top of Masahiro Chono. And at this point, like, Chono is able to power out of it. He, he lifts Rude on his shoulders. And at one point, he looks like he's almost going to lose it. I, I could see Medusa visibly like, oh my god, don't drop him, don't drop him. Uh, like, at that point. Uh, and then uh, he does drop him on his back, but like in the planned move, not like as an accident. Um, and at this point, I think we're like about 20 minutes in, maybe 15, 20 minutes in. And there hasn't been a single Yakuza kick, Matt. No, and like I said, if you're used to watching later stage Chono, you're expecting Yakuza kicks left and right. But uh, like I said, young Chono had a, a much better offense and he could go. And for people who might not understand what we're talking about with like Chono, like hitting repeated Yakuza kicks, just think of like Kenny Omega and his V trigger. Basically that's Chono and, and these kicks and these running kicks to, to a person's face. He would do it like, like at least 20 times in a single 10 minute match. Oh, you're going to get in trouble with Twitter saying Chono's like Omega. No, no, no. I'm trying, uh, like, uh, oh, it's too late. It's too late. I don't, I don't care. I just mute everyone that, like, shit talks back to me anyway. So it's okay. <laughs> I, I, I need to practice. Um, where am I here? Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, he, yeah, at some point, Rude goes to the top rope, hits Chono with a missile drop kick, uh, then a DDT for a two count. And at this point, we're at the 20 minute mark. And I think we're reaching the, what I call the crescendo of the match, Matt. Oh, yeah. And uh, you mentioned that missile dropkick. I'm not sure if I'm just not remembering it, but I don't remember Rude ever throwing a missile dropkick. I think he saved it for special occasions, maybe in WCW and the WBF. Like, but like you, I can't remember exactly him throwing one. I'm sure he has because he looked comfortable doing it. So, oh, yeah. He's more it of a power good. wrestler and like a mat based wrestler. So it's not too often you would see Rick Rude go like leave his feet or go to the top rope that often, except for like maybe hammer blows or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. At this point, the crowd is just, you know, their base level of excitement's going up, 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 and up. And uh, right after he didn't get the pin on the DDT, he goes back up top and the crowd gets terrified again at the knee drop. And then they're into uh, some superplexes. Yeah, I think this point, like, yeah, Chono catches Rick Rude and he does a second rope, second rope, uh, superplex for a two count. And, uh, Rude then hits his own for a close two. 
and like we're just gonna I just gonna go through the sequences here. Uh, Chono reverses Rude's tombstone pile driver attempt and hits his own. Uh like it's kinda like, you know, what Okada does a lot in his own matches. Uh Chono escapes a sleeper by doing the uh Bret Hart move, like using the corner to push off and try to like uh, get a I don't know what you would call it, like oh you flip overhead and pin your opponent like what he did with Steve Austin. And someone did it recently, I forget who. Uh, I don't remember who recently, but I always think of it as the Bret Hart and Austin spot. I love that move. Yeah, it's 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 great. It's a great way to get out of a, a sleeper hold of any kind. Uh, the thing was, like, Chono pushed over, but he couldn't flip over. So he just landed, like, like his back to Root's chest, and he's just, like, covering him that way. It didn't look as impressive, but, you know, what, what are you going to do? They're probably exhausted. 20 minutes in Sumo Hall wrestling at a high pace. I can't even imagine these, these guys, they're, what they're feeling right now. Yeah, I mean, they're both looking pretty greasy with the sweat. And uh, Chono, like you mentioned earlier, he seems to be having some problems uh, lifting Root at one point. Uh, Root helps him a lot on the uh, tombstone reversal. So Chono not quite getting over the top doesn't surprise me at that point. Okay, and I have, an, I have in my notes here uh, an important happening Something important happened at the 27-minute mark. Do you know what it is, Matt? What Was it a Yakuza kick? It was the first Yakuza kick of the match. At the 27-minute mark, I could not believe it, Matt. Like We, we did not see Yakuza kick until the 27-minute mark of this match. I, I by, the, by that point in the match, I was actually thinking, like, did Chono not use the kick at all at that point? Because uh, you're just used to kind of seeing them get spammed. So, well, I, I, like we were saying before, I think you know he had such a deep repertoire. And he could do he could do so much more because he had he didn't have neck problems uh, at this point. So, like I think he he would just save that move. But I think as that move got more o- more over and over with the crowd, like he thought, oh, I'm just going to use it a lot, which which is common with a lot of wrestlers. Obviously, you see Kenny do it with the V trigger, and to be fair, you know, like you see Kento Miyahara. Do the same thing with his uh, with his knee strike the the blackout. Is it the black? It's the blackout. I'm not sure. Oh, I'm gonna get so much shit on Twitter. Oh, you don't know the name of this fucking knee strike, you loser. But you know Kenny's name. I'm gonna get a lot of shit for that. Anyways, uh, where am I on my notes here? Uh, the, at this okay, so at this point at the 27 minute mark, we see a couple of bot spots. I think they're trying to go for the finish uh, until Chono finally gets the STF, and and it's near the corner. Uh, near the closer to the uh, hard camera side and we see like all the the, the photographers just crowding around <laughs> trying to get this shot of rude in the stf and i think at, at, among that crowd of photographers you, i think you're trying to see medusa trying to get to to the apron to like kind of like do her job and like kind of cheer rude on to get to the ropes and stuff but she just can't make it past all these photographers man yeah, she does a good job throughout the match. A, a few uh, yells and squeals here and there, but she's definitely lost in the sea of uh, reporters. I, I don't think I've ever seen that many photographers crushed so close to the ring. Well, I mean, these camp. days we, we have our fair share of photographers at, at big wrestling shows, but it's nothing like the heyday of like the, the early 90s for sure. Um, and at this point now, like Chono, like we t- talked about him taking power drivers. He took Quite a series of pile drivers <laughs> at this point in the match. And like I said, it's really kind of, not ironic. I don't want to say it's ironic, but it's kind of interesting to see considering all the pile driver he took from Steve Austin later on. Um, at this point, Rick Rude hits a flying knee from the top rope, like you're saying. So, and then, but Chono kicks out at one and the crowd goes nuts at this point. So I couldn't tell if that was like a planned spot that he kicks it at one or if. Rude slapping the mat a couple of times trying to get the ref to come over and Chono doesn't realize and kicks out on two. Oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't notice that. So go back and watch it. Just if the match is building up to that knee so much, I'm just not sure if he's, if he means to kick out at one or not. It could just be like, he thought I'm going to kick out at one. I'm going to be, I'm sure I'm tougher than like all all the people who lost to this move. I'm I'm just going to kick out at one. Uh, And at this point, like, so with the background that you're talking about, like he rude wins every match with this top rope knee drop. 
Chono kicks out at one. The crowd, Chono, Chono, Chono. They're they're like they they they're just going nuts. I would assume because like he kicked out at one. So in the end, I it was a good it was a good thing. It, it really popped the crowd. So and it just added more to the the atmosphere of the match. And then, oh yeah, uh, it was a mistake. It was a good mistake. So and then uh, from there, Chono sets up another SCF. He he gets it on him, and the crowd's going nuts for this again, playing probably into the. The idea that in his previous matches he had he had beat everyone probably with the STF. Uh, there's a big contrast uh, to today's booking is that they don't spend a lot of time outside the ring. If you notice this, trying to milk a like a twenty count like what I call a ghetto special, you know they try to count to nineteen and then everybody runs back in. They they spend as little time as possible outside the ring and they don't brawl into the crowd. And it's so refreshing to see this as opposed to like what I get in like at least like three or four matches on a modern day New Japan crowd man. I completely agree. Uh, I got, got into watching new Japan and and Japanese wrestling as a whole, just because for the most part, like, you know, good matches happened in the ring. And if they went outside, that was like a a rarity and an added, not a, a expected and wait for it part of a match. And I, I'm not going to, like, just blame New Japan. This is very common in a lot of other promotions. Dragon Gate does this a lot, much to my chagrin. I, I think All Japan doesn't abuse this as much, but they, they do do it. Um, yeah, pretty much every promotion in, J- in Japan goes outside. They do what they call the walk and brawl. They they spend an inordinate amount of time outside the ring, which I, you know, for the kind of old school fan in me, I really, really hate it. But it could be worse. It could be like the, the 70s and 80s where we did have count out finishes and we didn't have decisive wins in the ring anymore. But uh, we get we get that now. So that's I'll take that over like, you know, like, uh, like, OK, Jumbo Saruta and Tenru have uh, we don't want any of them to lose. So we're going to none of them want to lose. I feel the butcher doesn't want to lose. So we're just going to have a count out or disqualification. I'll take decisive wins over DQs and count outs any day of the week, though. Agreed. Okay, at this point, we're coming to the end here. Uh, Chono hits a gamiguri. So for people who want to know, gamiguri means face kick. Enziguri means back of the head kick. So I, I, it really drives me crazy when people call a face kick an enziguri. It's a gamiguri. So please, people, be aware of that. And he gets two count from that. He goes for a cradle, two count. And at this point, uh, Rick Rude throws Chono out to the ring. And what happens after this point, Matt? Maybe I'll let you finish off the, 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 the match review. So Chono gets thrown out of the ring, and he is immediately up and to the top rope. Root doesn't have a clue. Big shoulder block. One, two, three. Yeah, and yeah. And, and it was kind of came out of nowhere just like that. <laughs> it's like he reversed the, the circumstances of... The, the tournament where he won everything by submission, but this one he pinned Rude with a maneuver from the top rope, like what Rude did throughout the through his path to the G1 finals. So yeah, at twenty nine forty four, Chono becomes the sec. You know, he becomes the G1 climax winner for the second year in a row, and also he becomes the NWA heavyweight champion at this point. Yeah, he's got the big, pretty gold belt and. Uh... Uh, I think he gets to go to Halloween Havoc to show up on WCW pay-per-view. Well, he, he does defend uh, the big gold belt like multiple times like on New Japan uh, tours and in WCW. He would do a lot of like flying back and forth. Um, but also with being coming like the G1 Climax winner, he also gets a shot at the IWGP, IWGP title at some point. And uh, that would come. On January 4th, 1993, against the Great Muta in a title versus title match that uh, Muta would win. I think, you know, the sec- the, the year before in 91, um, uh, Chono didn't get his title shot at uh, Wrestle Kingdom in 92 because I think they were building towards a Ricky Choshu Tatsumi Fujinami IWGP title match. Uh, so he got it at a different date. And this wasn't an official thing at this point. Uh, you Like the winner of the G1 Climax getting the title shot at the January 4th Tokyo Dome show. That would come a little later and in subsequent shows that we'll be reviewing in the future. So what, what overall, what were your thoughts about this match, Matt? Uh, the things that really stood out to me were 
the the super hot crowd makes everything like 20% better. Uh, a, a long stretch of two guys trading headlocks and head scissors. Who cares? The the crowd's super into it, and it's kind of exciting. Uh, young Chono being able to do more than just throw kicks at somebody's head is great. And, uh, you know, you, Rick Rude's one of those guys you always remember that he was good, and then when you watch him in a big match, you really realize how good he was. It's, I, I love this match. It was great. Now, do you think if Rick Rude wanted to work, like, full-time, in Japan, like like a Stan Hansen or a Steve Williams, Terry Gordy, or Big Van Vader or Scott Norton, that he would have been as successful as some of them? I don't know about it as successful, but I mean, uh, he comes across like a legitimately tough guy, uh, and he didn't have a big history in Japan at the time of this match, and the crowd is super into him. They love to hate him. So I, I, if he wanted to, I think he could have been great there. I can't remember what year it was, but there is a match on YouTube that I posted. And I can't remember the date. I don't know if it was before or after this, but he's he's in All Japan Pro Wrestling. And he did a tour with them where he was like the third man with the uh, Miracle Violence Connection, which is, you know, Dr. Dusty Williams and uh, Terry Bam Bam Gordy. And I, I remember seeing those matches uh, on tape. I, I, I got a tape of those and a slight... This is this works really well. These guys as a as a trio works really well because I, I like the contrast of like the aesthetics of Williams and Gordy against Rick Rude, but stylistically, like for in ring style, they, they they're both they're all three of them are really hard hitting and they work really well with them. Usually, like when you have a trios match with uh, NBC, it's usually with like Gordy's uh, cousin Richard Slinger as kind of third man who's the pin eater, but. You're like you're wondering like who's gonna eat the pin in, in with Rude, Gordy, and Williams against like Masawa, Kobashi, and Kawada on the other side of of the match. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to see because obviously there's no clear pin eater on like the MVC side if if Rude's in there as opposed to Richard Slinger. Yeah, I, I assume Rude took the pin since he wasn't a regular in all Japan, but uh, that seems like a match I'm gonna have to snoop out. Uh, I'll send it to you later, Matt. It's on YouTube. Uh, So before we wrap things up, I want to do a little bit of trivia with you, Uh, something that uh, John Way do on the Review Away show, and I thought I'd uh, steal this this idea for this particular show. So it's August. uh, It's August 12th, 1994, the week of. Uh, What's the number one song on the top 100 uh, Billboard charts in, in America at this point? Number one song in August of 92? Uh, MC Hammer? No. Yeah. It's from a female artist, a very famous female artist. Madonna? It's Madonna. Yeah, I knew that. That's totally good. Do you know what song? Not a clue. Uh, it's a, one of her lesser known songs. I, 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 I did not know what song this was until I like listened to it on YouTube. Uh, this used to be my playground. By Madonna was the number one song uh, at this uh, on this week. Uh, what was the number one album? Madonna. It was uh, not Madonna. It's a male artist. He's a quote unquote country artist. Garth Brooks. Uh, the other big crossover country artist. Oh, Billy Ray. Billy Ray Cyrus. Yes. Uh, do you know what the name of his album was at this point? That that would be his achy breaky heart. Uh. I think no? it's a single. I think the album, I don't know. I'm not a Billy Ray Cyrus fan, so I, I don't know. But it's called Some Gave All. Oh. Anyways. What was the number one movie at the box office? Basic Instinct? Not Basic Instinct. It's a Western. It's, in my estimation, yes, the greatest Western ever made, uh, Unforgiven, uh, starring and directed by Clint Eastwood. Um, and let's get into the wrestling part of the trivia. Uh, Matt, who was the IWGP champion uh, on this day? I don't know. Okay, it's it's not it's the generation before the Three Musketeers. It wouldn't have been Shoshu. It was Choshu. Oh, okay. So, like him and Fujinami at this point are still kind of at the top, where like the Three Musketeers are are starting to break into 
that mix. Uh, who was the Triple Crown champion at this point? Misawa. Not Misawa. I suck at this. <laughs> uh, uh, Kawada would. Okay, not a Japanese person. Not a Japanese person. Hansen? It was Stan Hansen was the Triple Crown champion at this point. Uh, let's move to the United States. Who is the WWF champion? In August of 1992. Hogan? Not Hogan. Slaughter. Not Slaughter. Warrior. uh, It's Randy Savage. I suck at this. Okay, so Randy Savage is the the WWF champion. Who is the Intercontinental champion? Bret Hart. Yes, you're correct. It is Bret Hart. And (laughs) let's move over to... Cut the rest of these out and just use that one. Uh, no, we're keeping everything in. Sorry. Uh, this is important for the listeners to know this trivia, Matt. It's very, very important. Uh, I, this one, I just thought I'd throw in there to throw people off. Who is the USWA heavyweight champion? And USWA was the Memphis promotion uh, that uh, Jerry Jarrett ran in 92. And in 92, it was also Texas. Yeah, I think this is when they merged with World Class, right? Yeah. Uh, so their champ... Safe bet's always Lawler? Not Lawler. This is one of the rare times that Lawler did not hold it during his, I'm sure, like 500 title reigns with, with any variation of that belt. Jared? Uh, Je- Jeff Jarrett? Yeah. Not Jeff Jarrett. It is a guy who has, like, uh, who comes from a wrestling family, though. Brian Christopher? Not Brian Christopher. It's Eddie Gilbert. Oh. Ah. So this is a. Uh, Hot stuff, Eddie Gilbert. One of like he, he's he's kind of like a mainstay of Memphis. He traveled a lot during his career, but like Memphis is always some place he would always go back to and feud with Lawler. Uh, so he was USWA heavyweight champion at this point. And finally, who was the WCW world champion uh, in August of 1992? Ron Simmons. Ron Simmons. Yes, correct. So he uh, he had just won. I think he had won the belt from Vader like maybe a month earlier. Yeah, he would have won in probably a month or two after Bill Watts showed up, uh, going from Bill Watts' business ideas. Yeah, I remember seeing that match. It was a great match. Um, I remember seeing the the highlights on the Power Hour. I saw, I think they did show, like in Canada, they showed WCW, not Power Hour, they showed a different show, like that was like an hour long, but they showed that entire angle and the entire match. So I remember seeing that. And my, my favorite moment from that match is after Ron Simmons wins, there's this one young African-American fan who's just so elated. He's just jumping up and down. I'm like, that made me happy just because like, I'm so happy. Like someone who maybe had never seen like someone who looks like them win a title, you know, it it makes me happy. Like I'm, I'm still kind of waiting for that as an Asian person in like North American wrestling, like, like for the WWF or something, I don't count like Shinsuke Nakamura winning the United States title, just so you know, but like, I, I'm, I'm lucky. I have like Japan, like where I can see people who look like me winning titles and becoming big stars and not have to rely on like, you know, being second class citizens in like a North American wrestling promotion. But yeah. I don't want to get on a, a, too much of a tirade about that. That's maybe a, a podcast for another day sometime in the future maybe that would actually be an interesting topic Uh, i've got a trivia for you okay i promised some wrestling history when in my intro this is where where did chono win his first ever title in his career well you, you you so you said maritime wrestling history so i'm gonna assume it was in the maritimes for like was it emile dupree's promotion yeah, he, he won the Atlantic Grand Prix Wrestling Tag Team Championship in 1988 with Bulldog Bob Brown. So Bulldog Bob Brown was his tag team partner? Yes. Okay, who did they beat? I think they beat Leo Burke and the Cuban Assassin. Wow, that's pretty cool. I don't know too much about the Maritimes for wrestling history. For me... As someone from Toronto, like obviously there's like the rich history with the with Frank Tunney and the NWA before the WF just like takes over that entire 
city for wrestling. But for me, like when I started watching wrestling, my favorite Canadian territory was Montreal, was international wrestling with uh, promoted by the Rougeos because it was just an amazing collection of talent. You had the Rougeos, Jacques, Raymond, Armand, and you had like uh, the heel manager at the time, Eddie the Brain Creechman. Do you know any of these names? Oh, yeah. Uh, you had Doug, uh, you had Phil Lafon, uh, Dan Crawford working there, Tonga Kid. You had like all these people from the AWA, Bachwinkle, Rick Martel. Um, you, of course, the, one of the big stars was Dino Bravo. Uh, King Haku, King Tonga was wrestling there. That's where I first saw him. Just an amazing promotion. I really wish there was footage out there that like, uh, could be, you know, easily seen, but like I've never seen footage of this promotion made available. I know there was uh, commercial tapes in the mid to late 80s because I when we go to the video store, there was, uh, it was from Montreal All-Star Wrestling, and the cover was uh, Steve DeSalvo sticking a fork in Abdul's head, and my mother would never let me rent that video. <laughs> She's a smart woman, yeah. Uh, so, we don't... In the uh, in the Maritimes, we had like a, a couple of older guys who had like settled in the area. Uh, Killer Carl Proof, if you have ever heard of him, he was actually in the finals of one of the original uh, MSC tournaments against Noki. Uh, and then we had Leo Burke and uh, his brothers and a couple other guys. And then they'd always bring in uh, mid to higher level star for a tour every once in a while. So we had like. Rotten Rod Star was the big bad guy for a couple of years. Uh, Savage did a couple of tours. Uh, uh, Harley Race was around. We'd always get an NWA title defense once every two years or so. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Like the, the idea of like, you know, Canada has the kind of rich history that goes beyond like, you know, Stampede Wrestling. Like, you know, you have all these regional territories. Like, I guess the Maritimes with the Emile Dupree's, uh, with Grand Prix, Atlantic Grand Prix Wrestling. And yeah. you have like the Rougeos in Montreal with their international wrestling. Um, it's something to explore. Like, I, I like to think Pat Laprade has a, some great books about the Quebec territory, but I'm not sure if there's that much like information out there about the, the Maritimes. So this is a great history lesson, a bonus. For people who just tuned in to hear about Japanese wrestling, you, you got to hear some some history about Canadian wrestling from two Canadian wrestling fans. So we're, we're going to wrap it up here, Matt. I want to say thank you so much for coming on. And you're going to be coming on again in the future. We won't, we're not going to say which uh, particular match you're going to review with me in the future, but you're going to do another show with me. Uh, do, you wanna, do you have any plugs before we go? No, I, I got nothing. I got my, uh, I'm floating around Twitter if you can find me and other than that, uh, I just try and keep my nose clean. Yeah, you're you're smart. You and you and Joey get are smart about that. Except Joey likes to talk shit about people's like all Japan themed t shirts that everyone jumps on him because he says, "Oh, you've never seen that full card." I if I ever talk on Twitter about those things, it will just be to point out that they are the ugliest wrestling merchandise I have ever seen, and that is saying a lot. Well, I'm not going to say anything about the, the look of the merchandise. I don't want to catch any heat if those people... I'm okay to catch heat on that one. Hey, you're, you're a heat magnet, to be honest. <laughs> you know, let's, let's be honest. But, Matt, thank you so much for taking time out of your, your, your day to talk with me about this. And we're gonna... oh, Thank you. My pleasure. And to all listeners, thank you for listening. And we'll see you on Episode 3. Goodbye.